I'm Mike Sag. I'm here with Chip Schooley from San Diego. I'm at UAB in Birmingham. This is current status of COVID-19 treatment and vaccine evaluation. It's a uh, What We Know Today webinar series and uh, very happy to be with you. Um, we're both uh, coming to you from our office and home respectively. I'll let you guess who's where. Um, and uh, Chip, it's good to be with you. I think we're going to start off uh, with a polling question. Um, so let's see what the poll says. People can vote. Yeah, so in what time zone are you participating in? Let's go ahead and vote. Okay, we got about half the folks from Eastern to Central US, so pretty evenly distributed. All right, um, Chip, I guess we'll just jump right into this. Uh, first off, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I thought we had another question about what decade you think you're in. Did that one <laughs> drop? No, I'm doing fine. Things out here in California are um, popping along like in Alabama, and it's good to have a chance to talk to you. Yeah. So let's just dig in. I think we'll start with uh, some just questions about the virus itself and um, our perspective, I guess, on how does the virus cause disease? What's your current thinking? You know, the virus is, is uh, we've learned a lot about this virus, more than I think almost any virus in such a short period of time. I think HIV was a great opportunity to learn about uh, a virus in detail. And we've learned in a lot of ways uh, almost as much about this virus in six months as we learned about HIV in the first 15 or 20 years. Uh, we know that the virus uh, finds uh, specific receptors in the nasal epithelium uh, and in the lungs, uh, also in the GI tract. And it wreaks its pathology in those three uh, organ systems. Uh, we know that this virus uh, is um, uh, identical to um, SARS, uh, the original SARS, in terms of the receptor that it looks for, but it has one key difference, which I think has been really important in trying to control its epidemiology, and that is this virus has a program that shuts down innate immunity in the first couple of days of infection. And uh, what that leads to is uh, maximal shedding of virus uh, at a time when people don't have symptoms. Uh, with SARS itself, we could wait till somebody showed up in the hospital or the medical, uh, the medical setting with symptoms and isolate them and get their family. Here we're already two and a half or three days behind the curve uh, with uh, this virus uh, setting up shop in lungs and spreading um, at times with uh, fairly extensive lesions by CT scan and patients uh, not having any real systemic symptoms at all. Uh, KYUN has a very nice paper in uh, clinical infectious diseases about two months ago in which he um, looked at um, long, normal lung tissue from healthy people. He infected it with the original SARS, SARS-CoV-2, and showed that with the original SARS, um, uh, innate immune uh, uh, biomarkers were turned on pretty quickly, uh, mainly interferon beta and lambda. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 didn't turn any of them on. And when you look at three and a half times as rapidly on these lung explants, so it really is very attuned. It, it fixed up the one lesion that SARS um, itself didn't uh, think about, which is how to spread 
uh, rapidly uh, and um, uh, before we have a chance to, uh, to deal with uh, just going after symptomatic people. Yeah, I think just breaking apart what you said uh, in translating that clinically, number one, we know that one of the peak times of transmission is in the 24-hour period before someone shows up with symptoms. And to your point, the, the prior SARS-1 epidemic, up to 40% of the cases were among healthcare workers. And that's because they weren't shedding to any degree until they got in the hospital. The second thing is this immune response uh, usually is delayed. And I think that's why we don't see a lot of symptoms. Even when they do occur, they seem to accelerate about day eight to 10. At least when I had it, which I did, as, as most people know, um, I was okay for the first six to seven days. And then it, it just started taking off at night, especially almost like a cytokine storm. And the third point is that uh, a couple of the pathology studies uh, have shown that it's not just the lungs and the, the gut uh, respiratory epithelium. It's also a lot of other tissues in the body, as if the virus burrows through the respiratory cell and into the bloodstream and causes microclots, some macroclots with strokes and PTE, but also goes into other tissues and causes disease there. Yeah, so, and also, some of the autopsy studies have shown exactly that. It's much more widely disseminated than, than people initially thought. And uh, it's one of the reasons why if you're thinking about targeted delivery to specific organs, you have to realize this is really a systemic disease. I'm, I'm segueing a little bit over to the treatment a little earlier than I thought we might, but just when you mentioned the innate immune responses and interferon, uh, and I wonder, you know, there's some people that are talking about using inhaled um, beta interferon or some other things trying to make up for that gap. Do you have any sense of, I haven't seen that tested widely, um, but your thoughts on whether you think that'll work? There actually was a, was a controlled clinical trial uh, that did include uh, inhaled uh, beta interferon, but it also included, of course, uh, lopinavir, rotonavir, and hydroxychloroquine. Now, if you take those first two out of the picture, the, the variable here was um, uh, those three versus uh, placebo. If you take the other two drugs, which we now know are inactive out of the picture, the people who got that three-drug regimen did uh, substantially better in terms of, um, of uh, disease progression than those who didn't. In fact, I think, as I remember, there was a mortality difference. This was a study, again, led uh, in Hong Kong by KYUN. There is a study being planned within the NIH about uh, adding uh, uh, interferon uh, to um, to uh, remdesivir, and the discussion is whether to give it intravenously or intramuscularly, intravenously, or more importantly, uh, by an aerosolized route. And I don't know what the resolution of that discussion is. It's complicated to give drugs by an aerosolized route to people with COVID. And uh, so um, uh, the perennial route is at least one that's already been uh, chosen, and whether they add an aerosolized route or not isn't clear. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wearing scrubs right now because I was in our outpatient COVID clinic a little bit ago. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is that the COVID patients, to your point, uh, if I'm examining them and I just say, take a deep breath, that automatically induces a cough. It's like automatic. And so it's going to be right. It might be hard to do something that's inhaled or something that's uh, aerosolized. Let's talk for a minute about the long-term sequelae. So we mentioned that the virus gets in, it invades the lungs and gut and other tissues, and um, a lot of people recover by day 14 or day 16. But there seems to be more and more people, at least that I'm seeing in this outpatient clinic, who are 
one, two, three months out from their illness. And they're suffering, as they say in the South, pretty mightily, right? They have neurologic sequela. They got chest pain that resides as residual, uh, some shortness of breath. What's your best guess? What do you think's going on there? I think it's going to be a while before we know the full spectrum of the disease uh, here. We certainly are seeing um, more and more uh, reports of unusual presentations that are increasingly uh, uh, demonstrating that this is a disease that has more protean manifestations than we thought and reports of people with longer term morbidity. The first reports were as we might expect in people with more severe disease and again the first reports were mainly people who recovered from their pneumonia but uh, have taken a long long time to recondition uh, to be able to walk, climb stairs and certainly uh, God forbid to exercise. So I think the, uh, the message is that uh, we're going to see uh, more and more of this. Um, there also are people who um, have been put forward as um, uh, reinfections uh, and uh, who go home, do well for a while, and then a week or two after they're out, they start having a, another bit of a dip. And um, these have not been shown by molecular, molecular studies to be new viral strains, but they may well just be uh, a uh, part of this uh, balancing act between the virus and inflammation uh, and a longer term version of what you were talking about earlier with this acceleration six or seven days into it. And finally, I'd say that we used to think about tuberculosis. If you have a case of TB and you get treated, uh, it's over. But in fact, we know that uh, more and more about long term sequelae in terms of pulmonary fibrosis and other problems as we've had more time to follow people. And I think that young people who kind of have been blowing this off is nothing to worry about should take those kinds of, of concerns to heart. Absolutely. The other thing is a cardiomyopathy that could also be the, quote, deconditioning and, um, and, and people having trouble walking up just a couple flights of stairs when they have been running, you know, four to six miles a day. Uh, so it's clearly, I mean, obviously something nobody wants to get. So all the people that are kind of minimizing um, oh, it's no big deal if you get it and you, you're, you have a 1% chance of dying, 99% people survive, okay, fine. But that doesn't mean that everyone uh, does well and uh, only about 30 to maximum 40% of people are asymptomatic if they're young. So it's definitely something that nobody wants to get. What are you guys doing there in San Diego for treatment either out, for, let's start with outpatient, if there's any approaches that you guys are using, we can compare notes. Well, you know, a lot of what uh, we have an outpatient uh, COVID clinic run by Michelle Ritter, who does a spectacular job. Uh, she um, often, uh, most, many of the visits, in fact, most of them are virtual visits that are set up after people test positive at our mobile testing sites. Hmm. And it involves really um, uh, frequent contact by phone. And if people begin to uh, develop more severe symptoms, they get brought in for uh, evaluation physically and into the hospital if necessary. Uh, and we found this actually works very well. Most of the approach she's taken has been support care, which is where we are right now in terms of standard of care. But we also have some outpatient protocols that uh, we're uh, looking at uh, and uh, that will, I think, pick up with some of the um, monoclonal antibody studies and things that are um, trying to look at whether or not early treatment prevents uh, progression to hospitalization and, and respiratory compromise. So. Um, is uh, right now we have uh, an inpatient census of only about 40 to 50 people, less than as we were discussing earlier, you have, but 
Uh, she takes care of hundreds of people on the outpatient side. What are you all doing? Yeah, so we're, I've been, as I obviously said earlier, uh, Turner Overton is kind of running the operation and I just kind of pitch in uh, as he needs me for uh, support. And uh, we're seeing about 10 patients per outpatient visit, just like you were doing some virtual stuff up front. But the patients who are coming in are pretty sick and we're trying to keep them out of the hospital, but it's a tough call. A lady I just saw literally about an hour and a half ago, uh, 10 days into, into her course and was short of breath at rest, but her O2 sats were 98. And so she gets short of breath going back and forth to the bathroom, to the bed, but it's not quite sick enough to go in the hospital. And without a lot of data, we've been using a little bit anecdotally of some inhaled uh, steroid, and that seems to help with the large airway stuff. We aren't hearing a lot of wheezing, so albuterol you could try, but it doesn't seem to matter. Um, and and there's, it's real tempting because of the dexamethasone data to give just a whiff of steroids. And every now and then when I thought somebody was really on the verge of needing an admission but not quite there, I might try that. But there are no data, and I want to emphasize that. And that's why it's so hard with an epidemic that's exploding in our face to know what to do. Um, and I will say that Dr. Schooley was particularly helpful to me calling in frequently when I was going through all this. That was really helpful. But the bottom line is that the frustration, I think, for everybody was that there was really nothing we could do. Let's talk about some other treatments on the inpatient. You mentioned remdesivir. We're using that. Um, we're also using dexamethasone. But what came out this week is really interesting, uh, the tocilizumab story. And that's a study of uh, an IL-6 receptor inhibitor. And anecdotally, I was thinking it was working. And I, I'm not on the inpatient side very much, but the stories I was hearing, it made sense. The ferritins are up and there's evidence of, of a cytokine storm and that would be a decent choice. But the comparative trial showed no benefit. And that was in the England Journal of Medicine this week. Did that surprise you? To be honest, it didn't. And uh, it's mainly because I've been uh, watching immune-based therapies for about 25 years. and. Um, almost all of the ones that we think are really the smartest ones, in other words, the most specific um, intervention, uh, end up realizing that with immune-based therapies, we're often playing whack-a-mole. Uh, yes, IL-6 is up, but it's a generalized immune inflammation. And uh, it may be that um, in people that um, go into this, go in this direction, we need to have um, a broader immunosuppression that is less, um, less focused and less intense. Uh, you can talk about uh, dexamethasone as being one of the least um, uh, discriminatory uh, immunosuppressives around, but in some ways you might argue that that's a virtue here. Um, and and instead of trying to knock down one cytokine and watch the other ones come up around it. Educate me a little bit about this, because uh, at UAB there's a, a guy who focuses on this a lot in cytokine storms, and he's a, he's a big fan of IL-1 receptor antagonists and thinks that that would be a better approach, but how specific, I, don't, I just don't know, how specific is IL-1 inhibition? Uh, it's less specific than IL-6, but it does, because there are more things that it touches. And so I think there will be some of these cytokines, uh, cytokine inhibitory approaches that will work. But I think what the tocilizumab um, story does tell us is that it's important to evaluate them rigorously because um, the uh, many of the people doing the study, and um, uh, I certainly had an open mind, I wouldn't have been shocked, uh, were uh, uh, convinced that uh, they were going to see a signal. 
Uh, I, as you know, on the side at clinical infectious diseases, and we've been getting um, stacks of papers about tocilizumab, uh, mainly um, case control studies and efforts to try to do uh, propensity matching. And uh, some studies work, some studies don't, and I say in quotes. Uh, and uh, we basically uh, uh, published some of them because we were looking for early evidence, but lately we've stopped publishing these kinds of studies for the most part when, when randomized rigorous clinical trials are underway because that's where the real answer will come from. Um, the um, uh, other issue I think with some of these, uh, with all the therapeutics we're thinking about is this is a complex disease from the standpoint of pathogenesis and it's a disease in which uh, there are different stages. And uh, we often talk about uh, evidence-based medicine uh, and want to have a therapeutic that you broadly randomize everybody with a given disease um, entity uh, to arm A or B. But this is a disease in which some patients go down this cytokine uh, storm uh, direction. Some people get this microcirculatory um, uh, platelet and uh, clotting aggregation uh, 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 go down that uh, arm. And I think we may need to start thinking about looking for specific interventions for specific pathogenic um, uh, pathways, uh, as opposed to thinking about it as one single disease. And obviously with steroids and remdesivir, steroids didn't do so much if you treated them too early, except perhaps in Alabama. Uh, and um, remdesivir uh, didn't uh, do as much. Um, when you treated people too late. Although um, I think the answer still isn't in about how late is too late with remdesivir. It feels like that's a drug that if we could move it forward when the viral replication is just starting, that would be its best place, sort of like uh, oseltamivir is for influenza, but you can't because number one, there's not enough of it around. Number two, it's IV. Um, do you know of any uh, antivirals uh, uh, either uh, polymerase inhibitors or anything that's in tr clinical trials. I think I know the one or two that's at Hopkins right now. Uh, I think it's called EL4 or something like that. But you, yeah, there's a, a drug that uh, is um, uh, that Merck is developing that's oral uh, and that um, uh, is a polymerase inhibitor. Uh, it um, will be interesting to see if earlier intervention with this drug works. I think. Uh, it would have been nice to have seen a, a, a three-arm study in which one looked at the two drugs um, by themselves and perhaps the two together after we get a little more understanding of how they work. Because one of the things about remdesivir is that um, it's um, dose to the limit of its tolerance because of hepatotoxicity based mainly on the Ebola experience. And um, at autopsy, people uh, who've been on remdesivir do have residual virus. So I think being able to see if we can amp up the antiviral activity would be something that uh, uh, would would help us a bit understanding if that's one of the things we're still missing. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember back in the day when we were starting in the HIV world and you know, AZT monotherapy was it. And I remember when people started talking about using dual nucleosides, we thought, why would you add two drugs with the same mechanism? But obviously there was some benefit to that and there could well be that type of thing at play here. Um, any other things you see on the horizon for therapeutics? So we, we got plasma, convalescent plasma seems to be somewhat effective uh, in the hospital, at least anecdotally. And then from that monoclonal antibodies against the spike protein. 
uh, which is the outer portion of the virus. So are you hearing much about those approaches? Well, you've all seen the anecdotal uh, experiences with convalescent plasma. I think that uh, I see it as really a, a probe of, of um, moral immunity as opposed to a practical product because it's not scalable. And uh, so uh, I think that if humoral immune interventions work, the uh, street you want to be going down is uh, with broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. And a number of people have those. I think the uh, convalescent plasma approach is a very uh, uh, viable and, and valuable uh, clinical trial um, probe of understanding what role humoral immunity may play. There are animal models in which Convalescent plasma in the hamster challenge, for example, in KYUN's experience and neutralizing monoclonals and uh, Tom Rogers' experience here, also in the hamster model, show amelioration, uh, amelioration of disease. So uh, I, I see that as a very um, worthwhile uh, direction to go. Uh, what patient population would you use? Well, you could give it earlier in disease because it has a longer half-life. Um, their toxicity issues are not as great. Uh, ex expense will be an issue, but I do think we need to, um, to explore all of these issues. Well, I think, again, going back to the first points, uh, this is a brand new disease. We're using, we're extrapolating knowledge from the original SARS and MERS approach, but there are some significant differences, as we pointed out. And then, of course, using the 30 plus 40 years of experience with antivirals in general and dealing with different types of viral diseases all coming together, which is part of the reason why we're moving so fast. Just for everybody, I think we'll continue this um, sort of monologue between us for about another uh, 10 minutes or so, and then we'll open up for questions for the remainder of the, of the hour we're together. Um, let's segue over to vaccines because the common theme here is the spike protein which um, is at the heart of a lot of the candidate vaccines. And just to overview these quickly, um, there's an adenovirus, a chimp adenovirus vaccine that AstraZeneca has where that uh, protein is inserted. And then uh, Moderna, uh, Moderna, sorry, and uh, Pfizer have a mRNA virus uh, vaccine that where the segment, the fragment of the spike is put into a mRNA uh, fragment that then has got a, a nanolipid uh, capsule around it. Uh, it's important to note that all of these have had some really remarkable antibody responses and neutralizing antibodies. It's quite encouraging. And there's some of them are entering phase four studies, sorry, phase three studies even this week. Um, but we're a long way from knowing if that translates so neutralizing antibody ends. But what I'd like to talk about first, I think, is the notion of an mRNA vaccine. Never been done before. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's a really important platform to, ex to explore. It has um, advantage of being able to, um, production is relatively straightforward once you uh, settle on uh, the construct you want to use. So it'd be easy to, uh, relatively easy to scale up. Um, the, um, uh, but the, we won't know until the study's actually done about protection. Uh, I think that it's uh, great that we have the resources to test multiple different vaccine platforms because each of them has a different um, uh, range of types of immunity that get generated. Uh, 
T-cell immunity, uh, humoral uh, neutralizing antibodies, conformational epitopes, uh, and so forth. And uh, I think that simultaneously looking at multiple different approaches, um, given the global um, implications of the epidemic, uh, is really something very important to do. Um, I don't right now have a favorite stalking horse uh, in terms of which a platform is going to be most useful. I do hope that we don't do what we did with the age vaccine approach, which is to have all the lemmings following the same piper. Uh, and this would happen kind of sequentially with conventional wisdom over and over again. And um, uh, you end up with whiplash uh, saying, well, it's neutralizing antibodies. No, it's CTLs. No, it's confirmational epidopes. No, it's mucosal immunity. And soon eight or 10 years have passed. And um, uh, the, um, you're kind of back where you started because people weren't thinking broadly about um, uh, testing multiple hypotheses at one time. And that is what's going on to a pretty good degree right now. The one advantage, relatively speaking, of the COVID story is that, <laughs> unfortunately, we're in the middle of an exploding epidemic and there's a lot of people becoming infected. So it's likely that there will be a number of events, uh, even though I'm sure people are going to be uh, counseled about using wearing masks and keeping distance. But we're not doing a very good job in a lot of our hot zone uh, states right now in the United States and a lot of studies will be done there and we can start to find correlates of immunity if we see protection and do it the right way. Um, but one thing that I learned in the HIV story going back to the, uh, what was it, the Chiron vaccine um, that had about a, a, I don't know, a 20% apparent efficacy in the study. I think it was in Thailand and Everyone was churning about that, but if you look at the confidence interval about that response, it could go down as low as I think 10 or 8%. So thinking ahead, if we see some difference, it might be statistically significant. Do you have a sense of what we would call clinically significant? Because it doesn't feel like a 20% protection is gonna be what we're looking for. 50% maybe, uh, obviously 100% would be a slam dunk, but is there somewhere in that range that you say, yeah, that's probably worth scaling up to billion dollar platform to create uh, several hundred million doses of vaccine? Well, the other dimension here, in addition to the, uh, to the um, level of protection is the duration of protection. Um, the, uh, for coronaviruses, uh, for reasons we don't understand, um, immunity is fleeting. Uh, this has been true with the other circulating coronaviruses that go around every three or four years. One of the strains is one that doesn't bother to even have to change its, um, its uh, genetic uh, makeup very often because we, uh, as uh, uh, they uh, say in uh, The Godfathers, forget about it. Uh, our immune response is not, uh, 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 begins to decay kind of as the virus leaves the door. And we've already seen with uh, this uh, coronavirus that uh, both T-cell responses and neutralizing antibodies uh, began to decay uh, within days uh, after recovery uh, from infection. Uh, we see in uh, the vaccines that have been studied, the CanSino vaccine and, and, and others, that um, the immune responses are generated uh, by day 14 or at peak and by 28 days are beginning to fall. Now, what we don't know, of course, is whether or not uh, you have an anamnestic response, which is ready to come back and protect you if you get challenged, but this is a dimension that we don't see as much with other types of vaccines. 
Um, if we have a vaccine that's 50% effective, obviously we'd want to use it, but it wouldn't mean we want to open 50% of the bars uh, because uh, we know that masks are much more effective uh, than a 50% effective vaccine. And while it would uh, decrease the uh, R naught in a population to have a 50% effect with a, um, with a uh, vaccine, we're still gonna have to uh, pay attention to um, the epidemiologic interventions that seem to have uh, made such a difference in other parts of the world for some time to come. And one of the things that concerns me about the vaccines around the corner mentality is that we heard that with HIV for 30 years. And what that led to for the first 15 years is a failure to think about what if we don't have one, particularly in resource-limited settings. It delayed uh, access to antiretrovirals for probably five to 10 years uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa because people said, ah, vaccine's coming along too complicated to use antiretroviral drugs. What changed this epidemic, the AIDS epidemic, was antiretroviral drugs. And we have to keep an open mind that may be what actually happens with, uh, with coronavirus, that uh, yeah. longer acting drugs, oral drugs, uh, will uh, prevent us from having morbidity and mortality while we work on a vaccine. But that means we're gonna have to use these epidemiologic interventions to uh, tamp the epidemic down in the meantime. If we don't do that, what we're gonna have is what we are seeing now, which is this kind of constant opening a little bit and then closing the bars, but leaving the gyms open and then closing the gyms, but leaving the churches open and never really being able to get back to uh, operational, operationally running our economy and our schools the way we're going to need to. So uh, this, oh, we're gonna have a vaccine by 2021, we just need to get through the fall mentality can be really destructive and something we need to guard against. Yeah, and I think you said it earlier about how remarkable the science is moving fast. The fact that we have a phase three study for vaccine within six months of the description of the genetics of the virus is just breathtaking. Doesn't mean it's gonna work, but just the fact that we got to this point is unbelievable right now. A um, Couple of other quick points, at least if we do see some degree of protection, if it's only 50%, then we can start applying the, the scientific approach to see which arm of the immune system or combination is responsible for the protection that helps us assess future vaccines as we go. Um, and one other quick comment uh, just about um, the immunity, as you mentioned, uh, in, in my personal case, I volunteered for the research study on day three of my illness. And by day, by day 21, 24, I had a huge uh, neutralizing antibody response. It was 30,000 or something outrageous. And now it's it's down quite a bit. And it probably will be gone, at least I won't say negligible, but it won't be like it was by six months. So to your point, um, we might have to give this vaccine, even if it works often. And, and unless we have 100%, which I think is almost impossible, um, we're going to have to continue with the other mitigation. So uh, everyone, they're uh, starting to type in questions. I, I want to go back to one quick thing and then we'll open it up. But, um, you know, one of the things that you were just talking about, this whole notion of the, the way at least the U.S. mentality is of, well, we'll just suffer through this and vaccine will save us like a deus et machina in some Greek tragedy uh, and come up and rescue us from our, uh, from our peril. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's almost an embarrassment 
to think about the United States' response compared to almost every other industrialized country, and not to delve into politics so much, but it just feels like we're going about this exactly the wrong way. And uh, I don't know if you want to dig into that some, but it just feels to me like, how is it that France, Italy, Germany, all these other countries uh, have gotten it right, and we're still fiddle-farting around with with hot zones or red zones that uh, have uh, uh, high infection rates uh, and and positivity of tests on 20%. I mean, it just, it's in, it's infuriating. Well, I mean, unfortunately, uh, with infectious diseases, um, if the sieve is leaky, the water still gets through. And we, we've kept a leaky sieve. And what the other countries did when they shut down, they really shut down. People stayed home. Uh, we didn't have that happen here. Uh, even in the, the state that probably did the best job of it was New York. And um, that wasn't just Cuomo. He was slow to get it started, but once it got started, he was on the TV every day talking about it. Uh, they uh, went out and saw where there were problems and plugged them up. And the people in New York, to their credit, did it. Now, you also have to realize that people in New York were seeing refrigerator trucks with bodies around hospitals, and that gets your attention. Uh, we're next to Arizona, which is uh, setting records as well. Uh, the only thing that Ducey has done uh, is to um, say that restaurants have to reduce their capacity to 50%. Now they're seeing a decrease in their, uh, in their transmission rate. It's not because of that, it's because people have looked around to see what's going on and are staying home and putting their masks on. Uh, we saw with uh, HIV in the early days, um, a lot of, of controversy in um, uh, San Francisco and some of the hotbeds about uh, public health orders and telling people what to do. Well, the community at risk changed their own behavior long before uh, a lot of the kind of public health dictums came out. And I think, you know, we as a population need to take a responsibility for this disease too. We know what we need to do and uh, uh, we uh, just have failed to do it. Uh, our politicians have not helped because they've undermined science but that's true about AIDS, climate change, and all the other things that we're dealing with today. I, um, uh, and they, they, fundam they fundamentally undermine what science means. Science is what we know now uh, and something that we continuously examine so that as we learn more, it doesn't mean that science was wrong. It means science, science is working because yeah. we're continuing to look into question. Yeah. If there's anything, if there's any place that we've let ourselves down, it's been in places like the recalcitrance about masks and aerosols and unwillingness to say, yes, we should be wearing masks because we said earlier we shouldn't. Uh, we learned a lot when we started looking at how this, this uh, epidemic was rolling out. And it should have been a lot easier to say, you know, we really should have been telling people in hospitals to wear masks. And yep, it does make sense uh, when you have an outbreak in your community to have everybody wearing masks, as opposed to having public health people dig in their heels and say, no, we've been right all along. Uh, yeah, I think just an honest assessment of where we are, where we've been, and just modifying. And, and there's a, such a game of gotcha that goes on. Well, you know, Tony Fauci didn't say wear, wear a mask back in February. Well, okay. Um, we, we learn as we go and we change. That's the way everything always is in medicine and science. Let's go to the questions. Um, there's a whole bunch that are here. We'll try to get to all of them if we can, but I'll just take them in order. So what about genetic factors in terms of severity of illness? Um, Small paper suggesting, but we definitely see uh, racial differences, um, 
black patients seem to have um, more significant illness, Hispanics as well. Uh, have you seen any papers about genetics in particular? Well, there's certainly there's some evidence of uh, clustering of more severe disease and and uh, and blood group types. Um, type O is better. Type A is worse. Uh, we don't know whether that's. We, I suspect it has to do with genetic linkages. We don't understand the mechanism. Uh, none of them have been ones that you would modify your behavior or treatment about. Um, you know, you if you have a favorable blood type, your risk of getting infected may be 20% less, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't wear your mask on Saturday as well. Uh, so we're trying to, there's nothing that is a game changer in terms of um, of, uh, of behavior or uh, therapeutics. Uh, there may be, as we follow, it's something important to understand because a lot of times what come out of the, what will come out of studies like this is we understand things that might be modifiable uh, therapeutically or might be exploitable. And so it's an important area of research, but there's nothing right now that uh, has jumped out to the point that uh, we should act on. Yeah. Another question. This one's from Ellen asking about remdesivir. We sort of talked about a little bit earlier about an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase inhibitor, and that could be used earlier. And there are some that are in development. You mentioned the Merck compound. Uh, there's another compound or two that um, I think came out of North Carolina that is being evaluated at Hopkins right now. But um, uh, so we'll have to wait and see. There's nothing right on the horizon that's going to go into uh, large studies that I'm aware of. Um, Liz asked a question from Paz Magazine um, about the exclusion of people with HIV from the Moderna and Pfizer phase three studies and um, any scientific basis. I, I don't think so. I mean, to me, I think these studies ought to be open to as many different types of people as possible. They're going to be enrolling thousands. And the worst case would be that we end up enrolling a bunch of people who are um, younger to middle-aged white folks who are pretty healthy with no comorbid conditions and you see something, so what? I mean, they're not the ones who are necessarily getting the most ill in the hospital. Certainly there's plenty of white folks in the middle or older age are getting sick and many are dying, but it's, it's not as proportional. So I think we need to open it up to as many different types of people. I'm not sure the rationale. Do you have a sense of why HIV patients should be excluded from that? No, I think we really need to immunize broadly. Uh, I think there may be concerns on the vaccine manufacturer's part that if there are immunocompetent people it'll undermine the apparent effectiveness of the vaccine, but we're going to be using the vaccine in the general population. We need to have, we need to understand what effect it has in the general population. If you want to do a stratified analysis and ex exclude people with different um, uh, conditions, uh, people over 60 or people under 12, uh, that's fine. But you don't, uh, I think excluding them before without doing the study doesn't make any sense. No, these vaccines, certainly the mRNA vaccines and things, there's no reason that there's a safety uh, issue uh, with them. You did touch on an important point too, and, and, and that is that another issue with these vaccines and, and animal studies is the immunogenicity is substantially less than older animals. And uh, uh, I'd be at all, I wouldn't, Ralph Barrick made that point uh, early on in the, uh, he's been studying animal uh, coronavirus vaccines and I would expect that to happen uh, here uh, mm -hmm. as well, uh, yeah. until, until proven otherwise. And, and we, this, we don't have time to go into this in detail, but I think a, a simple answer for the HIV story is that for people who are well-controlled virus and doing well, their immune system response is 
seem to be identical to most others. And we're not seeing an increased frequency of people with HIV getting sick with coronavirus, uh, nor are we seeing necessarily more severe manifestations compared to non-HIV folks. So um, I think we, and also think about it this way. What about, what about if a virus uh, vaccine works and you've excluded an entire population, that population, if it's people living with HIV, are going to want to get vaccinated. So what are you going to tell them? You got to have data. So why not just get it now? Um, somebody's uh, following up with me about the inhaled steroid. Uh, I got to preface and say that I don't have any data for this. Um, it's something that we're doing on people that are kind of not uh, doing so well. We haven't anecdotally seen a lot of harm, but I can't tout it as a way forward. It's just sharing some experience. And um, a lot of times, you know, we're sort of stuck in that place medically where we feel like something might should be done uh, to keep somebody on the hospital. And that's what we've leaned on a little bit and haven't seen anecdotally again, many adverse effects, except you know, we've got to wash the mouth out after inhaling to avoid thrush. But um, it's too, I, I can't really get on a horse and advocate for it. Um, thoughts about the newly uh, uh, promoted limitations on remdesivir patients um, that are not on uh, ventilators or high flow oxygen devices. I think a lot of this is supply issue. Uh, right now, we don't have enough remdesivir for everybody, and they're trying to emphasize its use in the populations for which the biggest ratio of benefit to risk has been shown. And uh, as more drug becomes available, hopefully starting in September, um, uh, I think uh, uh, we should re-examine re -examine this. Yeah. There's a question that I'll take here about reinfection after natural infection. Well, that would be me. Uh, not that I got reinfected, but I'm at risk, I think. Um, so when I'm in clinic, I'm wearing full PPE. I'm not going to take the attitude that I'm immune. Um, we don't know. And as Chip said earlier, um, based on other coronaviruses, it's, uh, reinfection can happen. The question is timing and what are the immune correlates that make people vulnerable. So here's a question from Greg. If a vaccine does prove to be significantly less effective than others, a single one, would there be any recommendation to reimmunize those people who got the less effective vaccine? Uh, is there concerns about enhancement um, and maybe a negative consequence? Well, there are some, um, you know, we obviously know about concerns about dengue. Uh, there is a, um, there is a coronavirus called feline infectious peritonitis virus that has been um, in the, uh, that veterinarians deal with. There was a vaccine for that and animals who got vaccinated did worse than those who didn't. So there is at least a precedent uh, in um, feline infectious peritonitis virus that um, uh, vaccination was deleterious. Um, we have no idea whether that'll be the case here. That's one of the reasons that um, it's going to be extremely important uh, to make sure these studies are done rigorously and that people are followed for prolonged periods of time. Because as immunity, follow, as immunity falls, you could imagine that you might have neutralizing immunity fall more rapidly than um, antibodies that bind, for example, but don't neutralize the virus and might facilitate entry into cells. So uh, I, once we get evidence that a vaccine does or doesn't prevent disease or prevent infection, I want to see it licensed so we can use it. But I also want to see due diligence done to make sure that uh, it's the long-term follow-up 
we, number one, we understand the duration of protection, and, and number two, on the downslope, we don't start seeing problems that we didn't see on the upslope. So, uh, a couple, yeah, a couple quick points. Just going back to the beginning uh, of our discussion today, we talked about how this virus is different in terms of it shutting down immune system innate immunity on infection, and we also talked about the day what I call it eight to twelve syndrome where cytokines are kind of going crazy, um, and it's not just, I mean, it's theoretically possible that a vaccine would prime an immune system. Um, and if it got shut down, even after being primed, you theoretically could have a worse cytokine storm. So who knows? We're gonna have to find out. I think just to blindly say a vaccine is great just because it's a vaccine is not, is not really the way that we should be thinking about things. Now, here's a question about oral vaccine candidates and sort of picking up on the notion that polio, for example, is an oral uh, vaccine because that's where it gets entry. I've heard about some uh, a nasal um, formulation of vaccines that are, gonna, that are being explored now. I haven't heard about an oral one. The nasal, for obvious reasons, that's where the ACE2 receptors are, and it would go into the lung as well, I suppose. Um, I haven't, have you heard anything about an oral vaccine? Yeah, there's a company here in San Diego working on that. It's a very clever approach that uh, leads to kind of self-assembling um, spike proteins. And we'll have to see if it works. Uh, it's important to know that uh, poliovirus vaccine is oral. Uh, and what you ultimately are doing is not protecting from infection, you're pro protecting the virus, keeping the virus from getting to the CNS. And um, here we need more than just gastrointestinal immunity uh, for protection. And um, uh, if there is uh, local immunity in the GI tract, yes, that's one of the places the virus replicates, but we'd have to also make sure that that's inducing good levels of systemic immunity as well, uh, which it should. Uh, it's just a different pathogenesis. Here's a question. Is there any relation of HSPG with this virus? And I'm blocking on what HSPG might be. I have to say, I'm not sure either. So if that person could deconvolute the acronym uh, or, or send <laughs> us a, yeah. some uh, emoji about what it really is, we'll be happy to try to answer. All right. Um, the death rate in the United States is now much more less, is more less than, the death rate's less overall than we were in the beginning. Well, I think that's probably true, but I would as ascribe it to a couple things. One, uh, we've gotten better at knowing what to do when people get sick. And the hospitals are pretty adept at um, managing the respiratory failure. Initially, we were putting a lot of people on ventilators, almost like a knee jerk. Now we're leaning away from that. I remember when my son is a physician in New York, first started going on the wards in late March. Um, they were trying to avoid high flow oxygen and went right to the ventilator uh, to avoid the spread in the room and that type of thing. And I think what they're discovering now is that being on a ventilator, uh, you can avoid that in a lot of people um, and just support. And so that may be leading to less death. We've got drugs like remdesivir, dexamethasone. Um, I, I don't, I'm not surprised at that. In fact, it's almost to be expected. But that said, the number of deaths in the United States are mind-blowing. 100, over 150,000 we're, we're, we're going to be probably by November at over 200,000. That's equal to half of the number of soldiers who died in the entirety of World War II. Half of the soldiers in like nine months, whereas World War II went on for four to five years. Uh, and I don't know why we're not 
digesting or processing that or comprehending that. But to me, this is a massive humanitarian crisis for us. And yeah, they're older folks in a lot of cases, but they wouldn't be dead but for this virus. I mean, look at Herman Cain just this, this week. Um, guy, you know, a little bit older, but he wouldn't have been dead. He was very vibrant in the month of June. Um, I'm just not... I, well, I mean, if you think about it, it's, uh, if a thousand people are dying today, that's five airliners going down. Um, the other thing I think that may be playing a role uh, is that um, the, um, as we are doing better with masking and distancing, uh, people may be being exposed to lower levels of virus with their infection. Um, the, um, there are some good data now that the, um, the um, inoculum size affects the disease course. Um, in the early days of the epidemic, we got a stack of papers from China saying that the disease is less severe in places other than Wuhan. And there was never any molecular support for that. Uh, and there was never any phenotypic data to support that. But what I think in retrospect was going on was Wuhan was this just big cloud of virus that people were wandering through and getting just exposed to massive doses and getting sick quickly. Uh, we've seen in Italy and in New York early on, we saw these emergency rooms just full of people with inadequate PPE and a lot of secondary cases and the healthcare workers with a lot of people who got ill. Uh, there's a very um, uh, interesting study uh, that um, is in clinical infectious diseases from Switzerland in which the Swiss uh, who have national service for everybody uh, two years, everybody in their uh, 18 to 20 age group, they had two cohorts go through training in early March uh, before people were thinking about distancing and they had a substantial number get infected. And of those who got infected, about 40% became ill. Uh, they took the next cohort through uh, with masks and social distancing and they had a lower fraction of those get infected, but nobody had any symptoms. Yeah. I think it fits pretty well this issue of severity, which may be one of the reasons that the death rate is declining a bit. Yeah, inoculum matters, it seems like. We got some more questions. We'll try to do this kind of as quickly as we can. Um, where of any ongoing trials of two drug therapy with remdesivir, that is two antivirals, I'm not aware of any at this point. Just the ones adding interferon coming and the ones uh, with, uh, with monoclonal antibodies that are, are coming right. around. But not two nucleoside. Not two right now, no. The rapid deterioration of some outpatients uh, may be contributing to deaths. How do, how do we manage that? Um, it's, it's hard uh, because the case, the, the, predict, the predictions of who's going to get sick quickly is very difficult. Um, and, and it is kind of a varying presentation. I think, as, as Chip mentioned earlier, a lot of screening uh, over the phone and then having a sensitive ear to uh, who is sounding like their symptoms are getting into trouble quickly. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of deaths before people get to the hospital, though. Maybe I'm missing that. Um, people are getting there. And in the early days, a lot of folks were going right to the ICU. Uh, and I guess that happened some. I don't see that as much as we did in the past. Um, question here about BMIs over 30. I don't know why that is. Um, but there are, that alone, without any other so-called comorbid conditions, is associated with uh, uh, more severe disease in general. I can't explain why that is. Do you have any thoughts, Chip? 
Uh, no. Yeah. Kevin, uh, duration of vaccine effectiveness or antibodies truly, those seeing antibody truly reinfected after initial infection. Oh, we, we talked about that a little bit ago. Um, uh, we uh, uh, don't know. Bottom line, I think we'll figure that out as time moves on. And that'll require molecular biological ver verification uh, to, to know for sure. Uh, yeah. We may be able to see people in New York where 6% of the population is seropositive now if the epidemic gets hot in the winter to see if we can if we learn from that. But you're right, it'll take a while to sort that out. Yeah. Okay. Um, so major role is respiratory about getting into the body. Um, how much do we think is through an oral route for the initial infection? I don't think we know what the inoculum dose, what the inoculating dose needs to be. Um, the um, uh, I think um, we know that as people go through their infection and and shed less virus, they seem to become less infectious. Um, it may be because what we're measuring in terms of uh, RNA and nasal secretions, which is where we sample people, is is mainly RNA as opposed to infectious virus, but. Um, there is likely a threshold effect. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. There were some stories about following sewage and estimating relative prevalence by the amount of virus relative in one area versus another uh, because it's excreted that way. Uh, and it sounds like a kind of nasty study to do. I wouldn't sign up for that one. We're actually doing it here on our campus as part there of- There you go. I figured you were up with monitoring. Uh, Rob Knight is uh, already validated the approach. We looked at our hospital wastewater, there's uh, RNA there, and we're going to start applying it to our dormitories. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in this area from the standpoint of targeting uh, individual testing, and uh, I, uh, I think it's a, a really promising approach. Uh, most deaths seem to be in persons. I've, I've talked about that already, sorry. Um, what mutations does the virus have um, in general that we should be looking for? I think there was there's a general sense that the virus that came into the U.S. from the uh, West, that is coming from China, um, did not seem to be quite as infectious as the one that came from Europe. Uh, and that's what people, some people are ascribing to the New York epidemic being so, so quick and so bad. But um, as far as mutations we should be worried about, I guess it's like any other, that one that would... Uh, increase the virulence or ones that could uh, increase the uh, uh, that could increase the uh, uh, transmissibility um, let's see is early ECMO better than intubation I don't know do you have a clue uh, I don't early, need yep. early ECMO versus ventilation um, do we think the RO, the um, number of people infected per infected person, is that changing any? I guess it sort of depends on um, what's in the environment. I mean, no, without any mask, um, it's, 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 I don't think it's changing. The, I mentioned earlier the genetics that could be a play for increasing infectivity, um, but I, don't, I haven't heard anything about that. RO changing? 
Well, RO is a function, really, it's, it's a, a function of um, the, um, it measures how many people get infected uh, with any person, any, any individual infection. And the RO goes down uh, if you, if the virus has lots of opportunities to be, uh, to be transmitted. So wearing masks and um, uh, getting uh, socially distanced uh, decreases the RO. The virus itself, uh, there's no evidence that I've seen uh, that the virus itself has changed its intrinsic transmissibility though. Okay. All right, we only have a few minutes left to try to get to some more questions. Um, it's a question from Susan. Um, is there data to suggest that herd immunity will ever occur? Well, you know, right now the, uh, there haven't been any places that have gotten much above 10 to 12, some 15%, most are down below 5%. And the um, calculation about what herd immunity we would need to protect us is um, uh, with no kind of activity on the part of people just based on intrinsic transmissibility of the virus is probably closer to 70%. So we're nowhere near that uh, with what's been achieved. It was tried in, Sw in uh, Sweden and they, let, they ended up with uh, a lot of dead older people and uh, immunity uh, in the single digits. So uh, it'll be a long time if we get there. And if immunity uh, of the population is as um, unimpressive as Mike's is, uh, it may be that uh, we're always going to be running to catch up. So I don't think it's a strategy we should pursue. All right. I agree. Um, we've got, I'll take a couple questions here and then we'll probably have to wrap. This one's about vaccinating early for influenza this year uh, and then repeat it uh, in, 20, in January or so. Thoughts about that? Well, we, there are some uh, increasingly good data that people who get vaccinated early in the year uh, began to see themselves uh, as more susceptible later in the influenza year. And there are actually studies looking at uh, twice yearly vaccination versus a single vaccination in the fall. So I think what we've been doing up until now with flu vaccine is um, uh, has been beneficial, uh, but we are uh, but uh, influenza immunity is waning, and uh, in this setting, a double vaccination may be useful. Now, if we're running around with masks as we should be, uh, influenza uh, may be something that we'll have a tougher time getting around too. It certainly ended earlier last year when people went home at the end of uh, March. I that's exactly what I was thinking is that. There, there's got to be uh, some silver lining to all this mitigation for COVID. Um, that if we all wore a mask and we washed our hands frequently, did all that, the influenza epidemic should be much less intense. It should be much less intense, and so maybe we can start working on that. I want to I want to finish with just kind of a, a personal observation. And get your thoughts, Chip, and that is, we go back to this. We avoided hydroxychloroquine. Uh, discussion for, for a reason early on, didn't want to bring it up. I think there's pretty good evidence, multiple now randomized trials that have shown that it, it, at best, it might have a minimal effect and doesn't seem to be harmful, but it's not, it's not going to be a treatment that we're going to employ regularly. Yet, this week, we saw on the steps of our Capitol in, in Washington, a number of people wearing white coats uh, touting the benefit of this. And I, I get that. I, I understand why people might want to say that, but there was a really pernicious undertone of this, and that is that they, meaning 
people in the scientific community and the medical community at large are hiding something deliberately from the public. That was the key message there, that this is a conspiracy to keep a very valid treatment out of the hands of patients who have this disease. And what I think is harming us maybe almost the most with this whole problem in the U.S. is the breeding of distrust of what should be trusted voices. And, and if we don't have trusted voices that people can universally listen to and follow like they did in Switzerland or they did in Germany or they did in almost every other country, we are suffering because of that lack, that um, sort of deterioration of, of confidence and trust in people who we normally would follow through something like this. Chip, I'll let you have the last word on this and then we'll wrap up. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think we, um, experiments already been done in, um, in uh, New Zealand uh, and other places uh, that um, shows that if we take seriously masking and distancing, uh, this epidemic can be brought under control. Um, we're going to be in a situation after that happens in which the control is extremely fragile uh, and it won't take much to rekindle things uh, so that um, we're going to have to really, I think, uh, pay a lot of attention to things we know about until we have better biomedical interventions than we do or we'll be where we are for a long time. And it's a shame that we don't seem to be able to get that message. Uh, I'm in one of the people and engaged in trying to bring UC San Diego students back. And it's very precarious about whether we can do that in the midst of this, uh, this outbreak. I think we can operate the campus safely with the kinds of things we're going to be doing if we get the epidemic and the community under control. But there are a lot of things we can do if we can get the epidemic and the community under control. And I guess one of the things I don't understand, uh, the people who are saying it's the virus or the economy it's really the virus, then the economy. If we get the virus under control, we will have an economy. If we don't, we won't. And if I were the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, I would be grabbing everybody who is going on about it's one or the other, and you don't need to wear a mask by the lapels and say, look, we got business to do. We want to get the country back to normal. We know how to do it. Um, we want you to do, uh, we want you to espouse the following things, or we want you out of office. I think the, uh, enlightened business community is getting that as you're seeing some of the larger chains beginning to demand masks even in states where the governors aren't. They're protecting their employees, they're protecting us, and um, if uh, we don't have national leadership to lead us out of this, hopefully the business community, uh, local politicians, and others will, but we have to have a better response than we've had so far. And you used New Zealand as a great example but from the economy standpoint, just this week with the GDP numbers yesterday, I think, that we dropped uh, almost 32, 33%, and a country like Germany dropped, but only about 8 to 10%. And they, they hunkered down even more than we did. And yet their economy, they're trying to bring it back. But as you said, it's very fragile. And, you know, it's going to take ongoing vigilance until we can uh, either treat or vaccinate our way out of this uh, at the end of the day. Well, the hour went by quickly as we thought. Um, Dr. Schooley, um, thanks for joining me, and uh, we're going to have uh, we're going to have to sign off here. Uh, we've got some upcoming uh, on-demand 